We're continuing our series um, that we're doing kind of a little thematic series on who we are. And what we mean by that is we're looking at the doctrine of the church and then how this applies to us and um, how we should be living this out as a church. And previously, we've looked at the practices of the church that we saw in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. We saw that the church... In the immediate aftermath of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost and in Peter's sermon where he's preaching a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting sermon that led thousands to come to, to Christ in repentance and faith, we saw how that manifested itself in the church. They, they were devoted. They were devoted to the scripture, to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to one another in fellowship They were devoted to generosity. They sold goods and provided for the needs of the community. They were devoted to the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread and the fellowship that would uh, that would entail. And they devoted themselves to prayer that we saw uh, last week. Next, we want to kind of shift and look from look shift from the practices of the church and now look at what the Bible gives us as the pictures of the church, the pictures of the church. Back in the uh, 80s and 90s, and maybe it was before then, but that's the only time I was paying attention. Um, but the 80s and 90s, there was kind of a thing in the corporate business world to talk about mission statements and vision statements, right? I mean, how many plethora of books came out and talked about a vision of uh, a church? And this is the definition I've seen for a vision. It's a picture of an organization's preferred, preferred future. So you kind of visualize what this organization should look like. What, how should it be functioning? What, should, what it should be doing? I've often thought of that when I think about this issue of the New Testament giving us pictures or a vision of the church. The New Testament gives several different pictures of what the church is like. The relationship between uh, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and his people, the church. And these are, these are referred to as the metaphors, the metaphors, kind of just this figure of speech, this way of relating to where something is symbolized and represents uh, of one thing symbolizes, uh, symbolizes the other. The New Testament gives uh, several of, of these. Again, in relationship between God and his church, there's one of king and his subjects. There's one of creation, creator and his creatures. The, the, the metaphor imagery of shepherd and his sheep. Or as a master, as like a master of a household and his servants. Or as a teacher and his students. There's lots of many different metaphors. But there's five main metaphors that really stick out. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the, the five major metaphors in the New Testament for the relationship between God and his church and in doing so you get a picture of what god uh, has designed for his church and how the church should function and what it should do so in a way you could say this that the metaphor is the the mission we're going to be looking at the metaphors of the new testament for the church and hopefully be able to discover what what we should be doing in response or the pictures show our purpose Today, we're going to be looking at the first picture, and our first one will be seen in John chapter 15, 
verses 1 through 11. And so if you're there, you should be turned there right now. We're going to read together our scripture reading of John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a, a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the reading of God's word. We say thanks be to God. Father God, we do again ask that you would illuminate our minds and help us as we reflect on this, the first of the metaphors that you've given us for your church. Help us take these words to heart so that we could live appropriately for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here is the first picture or the first metaphor of the church, and that is branches. The metaphor is of a vineyard, a grapevine in particular, and Christ is described as the vine. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, collectively as a church, are referred to as branches. Now, let me give a little bit of the setting of this passage as you're as you hear kind of flip back to chapter 13. And you have Jesus in chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16 and even into 17. You have this kind of farewell discourse of Jesus. So beginning in chapter 13, all of this. 13 through 17 is all taking place the night before Jesus is crucified. John gives a great attention to detail about what is taking place in this time with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. And as they travel across uh, from Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives. 
And they most likely would have passed some vineyards there, and maybe that functions as the immediate metaphor that Jesus uses for um, his picturing for them their relationship. And so this is this farewell discourse. And in chapter 17, you have this prayer. And then notice in chapter 18 is when Jesus's betrayal and arrest takes place. See that in the heading in chapter 18. So here you have these farewell final words to Jesus. And right in the heart of this passage, you have, um, you have Jesus' description here of him as the true vine and his disciples as the branches. And you see here in verse 5, you, it's a couple of places here, um, but in verse 5 in particular, we have the metaphor spelled out very clearly. I am the vine, you are the branches. This is the last of Jesus's eight I am statements in John. Eight times Jesus has these key I am statements. One of them is an absolute statement when he says, uh, before Abraham was born, I am. Which was uh, clearly interpreted uh, and correctly interpreted by those who he is contending with at that time, that this was a claim to deity. He is claiming to be, to be the Lord. There's seven other, uh, there's seven times where Jesus uses this I am with this metaphor. He, he uh, describes himself as being the bread of, the, bread of life in chapter six. I am the bread of life. Chapter uh, eight, he says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, he says, I am the gate. Also in that chapter, he says, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection in, and the life. Chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this last one, the seventh of these seven metaphorical I am statements, is I am the true vine. Now, a little bit of background here. Um, the Old Testament frequently uses this picture of a vineyard or vine as a symbol for Israel, as a symbol for the people of Israel. Several places in the uh, Old Testament, it's in Ezekiel, there's a place in Jeremiah, Isaiah chapter 5 is a major one, uh, Isaiah 27, Psalm 80, all speak about Israel being this, this vine. And if you would, turn with me to Psalm 80, and we'll also look at the Isaiah 5, um, just to kind of give a flavor of this. I didn't want to just mention this. Maybe we could see this, uh, see this for ourselves, this, uh, this understanding about Israel being the vine. And why that's important, we'll, we'll see here in a moment. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 19 And again, this is a, a psalm of Asaph, and he's kind of praising God for his works and his works of redemption. Psalm 80, he says in verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt, right? What did God bring out of Egypt? Well, he brought, brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses brought them out. He guided them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, brought them through the Red Sea. This is the, the Exodus we see in the book of Exodus. And the psalmist here, he says, well, you brought this people and this people is a vine. You brought a vine out of Egypt and brought out the nations and planted it. 
uh, here being planted in the land that God had promised him. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. That's the river Euphrates. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all pass along the way? pluck its fruit here he's lamenting the the disaster that has come on israel because because of their violating or breaking the covenant but notice the picture of this this imagery the walls of this vineyard have been broken down and now its fruit is being plucked and then he peels for them to come and save them even uh, even in the midst of their judgment for Breaking the covenant. Notice Isaiah chapter uh, 5. Especially the first seven verses. You can see there in the heading, the vineyard of the Lord destroyed. Again, he's talking about the destruction of this vineyard is referring to the, uh, the exile to Babylon. This destruction that God is pouring out on Israel because they violated the covenant. They worshiped other gods. They did not act in justice or righteousness or faithfulness to him. But again, the imagery here is of a vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. See, God here, the Lord God is the the vine dresser, the owner of this vineyard. The vineyard is his people. And he says, I will remove its edge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. It will also command the clouds that they rain. uh, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. I think that's helpful for us to, uh, to see this, that regularly Israel is described as the vine or vineyard of the Lord. What Jesus is saying here is truly profound. He's not just making a metaphor. Um, It it is that. He's not just making a metaphor for his relationship between he and his disciples. Jesus is also making a very profound claim here. He is saying, I am the true Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. And this makes sense as you look through the life of Jesus, how he re- um, recapitulates, we could say, or he reenacts the story of Israel. Israel in Exodus chapter four is described as my son, right? Moses is given instructions by the Lord to go to Pharaoh 
and to say to Pharaoh to let my people go. And he says these words in 422. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is what the Lord does in the Exodus. Hosea chapter 11 speaks about this passage. And it says that uh, the, the Lord son had to go to Egypt and he brought my son out of Egypt. You remember the story about Jesus having to go to um, uh, when Herod is seeking his life and he's going to kill all the little baby boys in Bethlehem. Jesus needs to uh, Joseph and Mary escape and they go to Egypt. Matthew says, and this fulfills the word of the Lord that says, and I brought my son out of Egypt. Wait a second. That passage was referring to Israel coming out of Egypt. Matthew says, no, that passage is about the new Israel, the true Israel, Jesus having to go to Egypt and coming out of Egypt. Just as Israel gets has to pass through the waters, Jesus ministry begins with his baptism. Just as Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is wandering in that exact same wilderness area for 40 days. Just as Israel is tempted in the wilderness and fails, Jesus is tempted in that wilderness and succeeds. And he succeeds by quoting scripture verses. And which one was he quoting? The very ones that Moses said about Israel's wilderness wandering. I provided you bread. But to show you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus, we could, I could go on. We could do a whole series. I'm sure you have no doubt about that, how long that would be. Jesus is true Israel. And this is the mind-blowing thing here. Everyone who is in Christ is now in Israel. That's, the, that's behind this key word that you saw repeated eight times in here. Abide, abide, remain in me, abide. What does that mean? It means continue in a daily relationship of trust and faith with Jesus. And this is illustrated. Here's the metaphorical side. It's illustrated with him being the vine and us being branches. So branches in this uh, we're to understand here in Jesus's metaphor here is that the branches are Christians who abide in him to remain is another way of translating this Greek word to remain in him. And so several things I'd like for us to keep in mind about this. First, branches bear fruit. Notice verse four and five abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the life of the Son of God manifests in you if you remain in Him. Love this picture of bearing fruit, it's a recurring picture. Fruit, uh, even in the Old Testament, is kind of a picture of a righteous and godly life. Psalmist begins, Psalm 1 begins that way. And in verse 3, it says, And he, um, this man who does not stand in the way of sinners or uh, sit in the seat of mockers, 
says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And it says, and he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. So it's connected to a righteous life. Even John the Baptist, as he's preaching his baptism in the wilderness. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Again, connecting that um, fruit and fruitlessness with godliness. Fruitlessness uh, is a picture of faithlessness or an unrighteous life or rebellious life. John the Baptist continues and he says, you know, even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Remember Jesus walking by a, a fig tree, didn't have fruit on it, and he curses the fig tree and the fig tree withers and wilts. So there's, there's two types of branches. There's unproductive branches, and those branches are cut off, right? Every branch that does not bear fruit, in verse 2, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Um, they're discarded and burned, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Kind of a picture of judgment here. So there's unproductive branches, but then there are productive branches. And that's what Jesus' followers are called to be. In the same way that a, a branch is wholly dependent for its life and its productivity, for its nourishment and its growth, it's dependent on the vine for those things. So we, as believers, are dependent and abide in Jesus. And apart from Jesus, we can do no good thing. We can bear no fruit. And this fruit bearing, as you remember from, is, is the work of the Holy Spirit's presence. So as we abide in Christ, his spirit dwells in us and it bears fruit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, fellow branches, how, how's your abiding in Jesus going? How's your fruit productivity going? The abiding Christian bears fruit. Second, the abiding Christian loves and obeys Jesus. Verse four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. It is he that bears much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. Verses nine and ten. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus calls us to remain united to him, the vine, in love, by love, and by obedience. Now, some will say, well, isn't this, isn't Jesus teaching here, um, Salvation by works, that if we're obedient to him, then then we're saved. Um, I think verse three kind of works against that, because this is why he adds this in verse three. Tells them that um, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And he says to his disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Okay, 
So he, he's saying, like, I, you've already believed the word. I've already spoken this word to you. And so you're already pruned or cleaned in that sense. He goes, however, there's more work that needs to be done that you need to be pruned and cleaned. So you're, you're, you're cleaned because of my word. And now, as you abide in me, um, you're the, the work of sanctification starts to take place, right? Or we'll put it this way. Obedience is not what makes believers Jesus's friends. Obedience is what characterizes Jesus's friends and disciples. And Jesus gives himself as the example for this. Notice in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus was not working for the father's approval here. But he did abide in the father and obey the father. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. So branch, the abiding Christian, loves and obeys Jesus. Number three. The branch or abiding Christian uh, gets pruned. Saw that in verse three. We saw that in verse two, actually. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, this is the the refining and cleansing work of Jesus in our in our lives. That even though we are connected to Jesus and we're bearing fruit, he still will prune that branch so that it will be more productive and more fruitful. God will lop off parts of you. That prevent you from bearing fruit so that you will bear more fruit. And I can't help but think of this process of pruning as being painful. How many of you have experienced the pain of God's sanctifying work? I think of uh, the image that I, I think of when I think of this pruning work of God that he has to do and that we, we can't do, we need him to do. I think of um, a scene from The Voyage of the Don Treader, one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And I think of uh, Eustace. How many of you know Eustace, right? Okay. And Eustace, uh, I don't want to spend too much giving the background. He's the cousin of the main characters of Edmund, Lucy, um, Peter, and Susan. And in this uh, account, he kind of makes his way to a, a deceased dragon's cave, and he sees this great treasure there, and he kind of falls in love with this treasure, and he wants to make it his own. And then what it ends up happening, if I, get my, uh, if I remember the story right, is that he then starts to turn into the dragon. Correct me if I, if I got this right, right? He turns into a dragon and he gets all of the scales like a dragon. And he was kind of a miserable person to all of the other people there. He was kind of ornery uh, throughout the book. At, at, at this point, he starts to mourn and lament the fact that he's now a dragon. He's miserable that he's a dragon. And he tells the story about how uh, he changed and returned back to a boy. And um, he meets Aslan by a stream and 
he tells, Aslan tells Eustace, Eustace to, to undress. And what he meant by that was what he means to take off the scales. And so um, Eustace is clawing at and removing some of his scales. And the scales do indeed fall off. And then he is supposed to go and bathe in this stream. And so he goes and he removes all of these. And then he goes back there and he realizes, oh, no, I still have scales. And he tries it again. And he says he tries to scratch and claw and remove the scales. And it doesn't experience any pain in it. And he, he thinks he's clean. And he goes to the water again. And he sees that it's happened again. Finally, Aslan, the great lion, causes Eustace to lie down. And Aslan, with his claws, removes the scales. And he says that this, as if he was cutting right through his heart, it's now, it's now painful. His attempts to kind of claw away at his scales was only superficial and painless. But Aslan, this Christ figure, is the one who removes his scales and it's deep and it's painful. But the result is, is that Eustace is a boy again. Great picture. We can't, we can't fix ourselves. Real, deep, and lasting change is done by God. And it might be painful in the moment, but it is true and it is lasting. And I think um, that's a, a good way for us to think about this pruning that God has to do to us to make us more fruitful. And it's hard and it's painful, but we need to embrace this pruning. Number four, the, the abiding Christian experiences answer to prayer. Verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I think the key here is to abide. James tells us that we sometimes we don't get what we ask for because we don't ask. OK, so you should ask. But then he also says. And you also don't get what you ask for because you ask to spend on your own desires and your own pleasures. It's a fine, it's a, it's a really interesting balance because um, that kind of, well, so I need to ask for something that I feel like I desire, but how, how do I know it's the right thing? Well, you should ask, but you should do as Jesus says, you abide in me and my words abide in you as his word abides in you. Your wants and your desires change to his desires. And then he says. And ask whatever you wish and it will be done. So the abiding Christian does experience answers to prayer. Have you ever been discouraged? Think that God doesn't answer. You ever given up? I have. It's embarrassing to admit. There's things that I've prayed for and prayed for for a long time and he doesn't uh, answer and then I quit. And it could be that it's, you know, this is a refining process. It could be the answer is no. Could be the answer is just be slow. Wait. But we should never give up. We should keep asking. So the abiding Christian receives, as Jesus promises, answered prayer when we abide in him and his word abides in us. Number five, the abiding Christian is to bring glory to the father. Verse eight. By this, my father is glorified. How? That you might that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
So as we bear fruit, as we live in love and obedience to Christ, we are in communion and relationship with him in prayer, and we love other people. He goes on in verses 12 through 17 to talk about his command to love one another as I have loved you. Previous chapters, he says, and this is how they will, the world will know that you are my disciples when you love one another, right? He connects that to fruit, fruitfulness here. By this you will glorify my, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So we live in intimate relationship with Jesus. We're in love and obedience to him. And that means love to one another as well. And in so doing, you bring glory to the father. And lastly, number six, the abiding Christian knows joy in Christ. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's part of our task in our mission is to be connected to Jesus, to abide in him. And when we do, not only are we bearing fruit for him, but we're doing it with joy. With joy. That our joy may be full, he says. And this is no human level of joy that we just get a lot of. This is a divine joy. Jesus says, my joy may be in you. So the abiding Christian knows true joy in Christ. So let me, let me wrap up with this here. Then returning to this metaphor of the vine and the branches. The church is described as branches of the vine. So the church is the branches, Jesus is the vine. Jesus is the true Israel. Therefore, the church then in him is to bear fruit through the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. That we are to fan into flame our love for Christ and our fervor to obey him. That we hold fast to Jesus and to his word. That we plan on being changed through painful pruning so that we can be more fruitful to him. That we would pray with expectation that God hears and answers. And that we would make God's glory our ultimate ambition in life. What is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? And that we would be filled with God's own joy, the joy of Jesus himself. Will you do that, church? Branches united to Jesus, our vine. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word and the magnificent ways in which this massive book dating well over a century all speaks of one amazing story. It's all focused 
on your son, Jesus. We thank you so much for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus, that you would take us who are rebels and turn our hearts back to you. And that we, we offer nothing to that. That you do that purely out of your grace. It's not based upon our works in any way. But purely on the works of Christ. And the merit of his righteous life. And so God we thank you that you have united us to Jesus. And you've given us this picture of branches and vine. God help us. To reflect on and meditate on the truth of what Jesus conveys in those words. And help us to do as you, to do what you call us to do in those words, in those very words of Jesus, that we would abide, that we would remain in Jesus and in his love. Help us to trust in your word, to turn in prayer to Jesus. To love one another. Proving that we are your disciples. And that we would bring glory to you. And in doing so experience true and eternal and everlasting joy. We pray all this in Jesus mighty name. And all God's people said. Amen and amen. Friends, will you stand with me as our closing benediction for this morning? And a reminder, the offering boxes in the corner there in the handout are several of those announcements. There are also some prayer requests. If you would like um, some prayer, uh, if there's some needs that you would like to uh, make known to, to me for, um, to lift you up in prayer, um, I would love to meet with you and talk with you uh, afterward. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with you all as you go. Thank you.